0: The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcralee.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Amen. Let's take our uh, Bibles, if we would, today and turn to Philippians chapter number 2. And uh, I think what I'm going to do is, uh, the intimate crowd we have today, I'm just going to come down here and teach. Is that okay with everybody? I feel a little, I feel a little far away from you up there. So let's take our Bible, Philippians chapter number 2. Mm. Philippians 2. And would you join me uh, as I read out loud? Would you read silently along with me? We're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter number 2. And then we'll pray together and see what the Lord has to teach us today. So, the reading of the Word of the Lord. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be seized upon. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that uh, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Father. So, would you join me in a word of prayer today, as so we ask God's blessing upon His Word and upon the exhortation of it? Our Lord, we now come to you in this time. I uh, thank you for this fine group that's here this morning, and we want to pray uh, once again for all of our folks that are unable to be here today, may be damaged at their homes. In fact, Lord, we know of several folks in our church that have uh, extensive damage to their homes. We want to pray that you would uh, provide there. Lord, we pray for all of the citizens of North Carolina and these other states. Uh, Lord, saved and lost people alike that are dealing with the aftermath of this hurricane. We pray for your grace and mercy. Lord, you say that you cause it to rain upon the just and the unjust. And so we pray for prevenient or open grace to all people. But Lord, in the middle of um, uh, some of this heartache and frustration, we do pray that uh, you would bend people's minds toward Jesus Christ and that believers would have a good and a righteous testimony, Lord, as they uh, walk through this with you and that they would be able to share the gospel with friends and neighbors and they might see Christ in us the hope of glory. Now, Lord, as we have opened this beautiful and wonderful text before us, we pray in the next few minutes that You would teach us and help us uh, to follow on after You in the way of Jesus Christ. For it is in the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you can follow along there in your bulletin today. Just kind of um, titled this sermon, uh, To Live and to Love... And to learn. Or, if you're looking for a second title, I was thinking about later on in the week, maybe I might have should have titled this sermon, uh, The Kind of Church That Jesus Would Join. Right? The Kind of Church That Jesus Would join, live, love, learn. What I want to do, uh, today for you is, is kind of break this text apart in three different areas. But as I was watching, uh, outside of our windows, as you were watching most certainly yesterday outside of yours and you saw all of this rain and, uh, as you maybe watch the news, how the trees kind of fall over and big root systems are, uh, uh, uprooted. I was thinking about this last week. I was reading about, um, these great aspen trees in the Rocky Mountains and how they can grow up to a 100 feet tall and yet withstand snowstorms and all kinds of winds, and they, they don't blow over them. And, and the reason why is that uh, scientists tell us that the root system of these aspen trees are, although there are many trees in maybe an acre worth of land, all of the root system is, uh, for essence, one large root. They are all intertwined and uh, running over each other, and so they work together. And so you have these trees that can grow large and tall and strong. They can withstand snowstorms and all of these other things. And the reason why is because the root system, that which holds the tree to the ground, is working together. You don't have each root working on its own idea or its own preference. You have the entire root system working together. And you know, when I think about the church and what the Apostle Paul is writing to, he's writing to the church at Philippi in this text. And later on in chapter number 2 and chapter number 3, you'll find that this church itself is having major difficulties. They are having some struggles of unity. They are having some people that are uh, frustrated and saying things that they should not be. And uh, so what the Apostle Paul does is he comes along and he writes this text and he says, this is the kind of church that Jesus would join. This is the kind of church that God wants every believer to be a part of. And so let me just simply uh, walk through the text with you. From verse 1 and 2, let me read those two verses again and then make a point for you. Therefore, now notice in your text, I'm going to do more teaching today, but I want you to stay with me. You might want to underline the little word if or since in your version here, but therefore, if there is any encouragement is the word here, encouragement in Christ... Again, another conditional. If, if there is any consolation or solace or comfort of love. Again, another condition. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, it is again that Greek word koinonia. It is that brotherly and sisterly love that only believers can have in Christ Jesus. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, that is our spirit together and underneath of the Spirit of the living God. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit. And then another condition. If any affection and compassion Verse 1 and 2 is an if-then clause. It tells us if any of these blessings are a part of your life and a part of your church's life, then, verse number 2, this is how you can make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit and intent upon the purpose. Notice, first of all, that we are to live as one. And we see in verse number 1 and 2 these blessings and behavior. Verse number 1 gives you the blessings that we are to live together. He says here, if there is any encouragement at all in Christ, if there is any unitedness in Christ Jesus... It doesn't say that it has to be total. You notice that? It doesn't say that it has to be complete. It doesn't say that it has to be perfect. It just simply says that if there is any reason at all to rejoice in what Jesus has done for you, if there is any comfort or solace of love, if ever one time in your life you have found comfort in Jesus Christ and you have found comfort from the brothers and sisters of your church, any one time in your life, if there's any encouragement, Christ, comfort of love, Look back down to what it says here. If there's any fellowship together and affection and compassion, brothers and sisters that are here today, if ever one time in your life you have found Jesus to be the one who heals your soul and helps you, and if ever one time in your life you have found God's people at Emmanuel Baptist Church to be helpful and loving and compassionate and affectionate and joy and unity If that has ever happened in your life, those are the blessings of Christ Jesus. And the behavior that goes along with that, you see, I wouldn't have said verse number two. I would have said, if you have these blessings, do this. If you have these blessings, do that. If you have these blessings, all of these other things. But what does the Apostle Paul says completes his joy? You see, where it says, make my joy complete, that's the verb in this passage here in verse 1 and 2. He says, make my joy complete. And by making the joy of the Apostle Paul complete, you are in essence making the joy of God complete, for it is the Apostle Paul who is the inerrant writer of biblical Scripture. Make my joy complete. What is the behavior that goes along with the blessings that we are to live as one? Look back down at verse number 2. It says here, be of the same mind. I want you to understand that it is not teaching here. Scripture does not teach group think. We are not saying here that we are all robots or toy soldiers or we're not all cookie-cutter Christians. It doesn't mean that within the life of the church that everybody has to say and do the same thing all the time. What it says here is it is a like-mindedness, that we are all on the same team, that we might have different personalities and different preferences and different ideas, but that we are all in unity thinking the same way to please Jesus Christ with our lives. Be of the same mind. And then look what it says here. I think it's an interesting, my translation says, maintain the same love. You might have something like that, but what's really going on is that for love, you have to actually fight for love. Now, certainly many of you in here, before you uh, before you got married, you remember when you were, you were in that dating stage and the wooing stage, and you were writing letters and emails and all of that, and you thought, I will be in love with Him the rest of my life, and we'll just walk on water together. And then you got married and realized love can be a bit tough at times, can't it? I did some premarital counseling for a couple one time and uh, in the first session they told me, they said, well, we've not had a fight yet. And I said, oh, is that right? Probably about three months after they had been married, I was standing beside this dear brother and he whispered in my ear, you remember that time when I told you we hadn't had a fight yet? Well, that's past. Maintain the same love. You see how it is in church? There's so many people that when things happen in church life or you see something a little different or you have a little bit of a a rough go at it, you just want to bail out and go somewhere else. Well, let me tell you something. When you go somewhere else, you're going to find a church that is flawed from the inside out. And if you ever find a perfect one, for God's sakes, don't join it, you'll screw it up. Okay? Don't do it. Why would you want to run? Maintain. Fight for The same love. The same love. Look what the text says. United in spirit and intent on one purpose. You know why the Apostle Paul is in prison when he writes this letter? For one purpose. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to maintain unity in the church? Have the overwhelming driving force of your life to preach and teach and give the gospel to unbelievers. Do whatever it takes to make that the purpose of your life. And you'll find that all of the rest of the little nitpicky, trifling things will fall to the ground in the light of making Jesus the King of glory and bringing people to the knowledge of Christ. What does the Apostle Paul say to us in this passage? Live as one. I'll give you a, a negative example and a positive example. I was reading this past week in a book by uh, uh, Leslie Flynn called uh, Great Church Fights. <laughs> and he tells a story about this dad who is um, in the uh, living room and he looks out the front window and he sees his little girl playing in the front yard with uh, her little friends and they're yelling at each other. And uh, dad runs out the front door and says, baby, stop fighting with your friends. And she looks up at him and says, dad, we're just playing church. Yikes! That's a stick it in the fifth rib and turn it around a few times, isn't it? children, out of the mouth of babes, be careful. Be careful what our children and our youth see us, that they're watching. Even when they're texting in church, even when they're smiling and passing notes, they're always watching. Oh, you were wondering if I can see over there. I got it. I got it. I can see. Yeah, I can see. I can see. I really can't, but as long as I say that and I see your face, I'm just messing with you. Be careful for that. Uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite preachers of all time is Charles Spurgeon. But um, I guess I can say this. But Charles Spurgeon was a bit of a drama queen, but he had some really good things to say. And I, I just want to read you this little paragraph he wrote about one of his friends. L- listen to this. Charles Spurgeon said this: "I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan." Right? That's drama right there. Okay. He says, "But I love George Herbert." Although George Herbert is desperately a high churchman, I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul. And I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus as George Herbert did, and I do not ask myself whether I shall not love him or not. There is no room for question. For I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ. I cannot cease loving those who love Him. Is that the way that you live with the brothers and sisters within the confines of this church? Is that the way that the people outside of our church see us operating? Let's be the kind of people that live as one. Uh, a couple of points of application on that. I say, how do I, how do I work at that? I, w- I would say, number one, meditate on the goodness of Christ and the rich blessings that are yours in the local church. Meditate on the goodness of Christ and the rich blessings that are yours in the local church. And there are people in this church who their church family is more a family to them than their biological family. And some of us that have grown up in church all our life, we tip this to God and we act so flippant about those relationships. Don't do that around those people that desperately need the brothers and sisters in this church. You ought to meditate and think and dwell upon the fact of the goodness of Jesus and the brothers and sisters in this church that have made a difference in your life. Number two, think biblically. Think biblically. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Do you know where arguments and fusses and fights and all of that come from when people aren't thinking biblically? I'm watching this stuff. I'm careful. It's ever a, you know, this political season is ever a landmine field for a pastor to walk through. And so I won't walk through it. I'll walk around it. But I want to set up a poll as you get ready to walk through this political season be very, very careful that you do not confuse biblical thinking with nationalism or patriotism or your party's system. Okay? And the issue in voting is not winning. The issue for a believer in voting is voting biblically for somebody that you believe can represent accurately and that you can live within your heart. Okay? All the fussing and fighting. It doesn't matter what some news anchor says on Fox News. It doesn't matter what somebody says on CNN. What matters is, am I looking into the Scripture and with a peaceful and a humble heart, am I saying this is the way I'm moving forward and I'm going to do that in love and righteousness and I'm going to love my brothers and sisters that don't think like me, but I'm going to make a defense for what I do believe is right biblically. Not because I grew up in a party, but because this is what the Bible teaches. And by the way, you're not going to open the Bible and find what candidate to vote for. You're going to find the principles that teach you how to love Jesus and walk in that way. That was a sermon all on its own for free. (laughs) Number three, uh, an application. With love, remember that we are on the same team pursuing the same goal. Sometimes we, we get so mixed up in our mind. Hey, husbands and wives, you are going to have conflict in your life. Hey, those of you that are in relationships and even with friendships, you are going to have conflict. But it was a good day in my life. You know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a family where whoever yelled the loudest won the argument. Okay. And some of you grew up like that and others of you didn't and you get in a relationship or you get in a friendship or you've got people in your life or coworkers and and you you think that the point of the argument is to win the point of the argument is not to win the point of the argument is for the other person to be understood and that you're on the same team heading for the same goal loving the same Christ okay number 2 from verse 3 and 4 love each other Simple enough point, right? So Steve went a long time to seminary to make that kind of point. Love each other. I, the Apostle Paul makes it. Look at verse. Uh, this is the kind of church that Jesus would join, I believe. One that loved each other. Verse three and four. Notice here he says, do nothing. That's it. it the, the verb here is an imperative. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Notice the contrasting but here. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but Right? With humility of mind, you are to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Some of you might have to esteem each other better than yourself, better or more important or more significant. The issue here is it has the, the, the word here has the connotation of that you are lifting them up to be above you. That's the way you should regard them as above you. That's the way that we are to live. And these verses teach us, when we love each other, the right the motives and the ministry. Look at the motives. It says here, do nothing from selfishness. Right? That's a wrong motive. When, when the motives that you're living your Christian life and loving people are for you and what you can get and what you can get from somebody, that's the wrong motive. Don't use people. An empty conceit. Out of your own pride. But what is the proper motive? It says here, "...with humility of mind." And then what is the ministry? That you are regard others more important to yourself. Look at verse four. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now you'll notice there probably the word merely or something like that is in italics in verse four. It's, it's not there. It's a, it's, it's the translators are trying to tell you we put that there for you so you can understand and smooth out the text. But it is saying it's not saying don't ever look out for your own interests. That wouldn't be a biblical thought. Well, the Bible says that you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. See, you are to love yourself, and you're to love your neighbor properly. You are to look out for your own interests, but not merely for your own interests. But most of us want to watch out for number one, and you know the rest of the world can just kind of go jump off a a, a bridge somewhere. The Apostle Paul says the way that it should be in church is that we esteem others, we lift others up above ourselves and we don't just look out for our own interests, but we look out for the interests of everybody else. You know, what's beautiful is I'm from Florida and in the Florida coast, uh, you know, some people up here, they don't understand. Like when you see down in Florida, you see people are like, yeah, we're not going anywhere. We're just going to button down the hatches. We'll ride it out. No, that's the way it is in Florida. All right. We've been dealing with storms for a long time. You want to know one of the most beautiful illustrations of this kind of thing is on the Florida coastline. Whenever the storms come in, you watch the next day, all the neighbors come out and everybody helps everybody. That's a beautiful thing. You don't just see people come out and work on their own house. You see people come out and work on everybody else's houses. That's the way, that's the way the world's doing it. How much more, the apostle says, should that be true of God's people? That we don't just look out for our own interests, but we minister to the lives of other human beings and we put them above ourselves. Well, I'll tell you one little way that Connie has done that for me. She doesn't like to make it in the sermon too often, but this one's good. Connie and I love to eat the mozzarella sticks at Chili's. Y'all ever had those before? For some reason every time we eat the mozzarella sticks at Chili's, they give us 7 instead of 8. And you know something? Every time I have the intention I'm going to let her have the last one. And every time we get to the last one, I'll say, "You can eat it." And She'll say, "No, sweetie, you can have it." Are you sure? <laughs> and I don't even let it, I don't even let the second I'm sure get out. Wham! I scarf it up. Down it goes. You know, just put, put somebody put put them, put somebody else before you, Sal. You know, moms and dads that are in here today and, and grandparents. You naturally do that, don't you, with your with your children and grandchildren? the way it is. I've seen I've seen ladies. I've seen our nursery workers back there before. Uh, some kid being in the nursery got snot running out of every orifice of their body, and they take the end of their dress and wipe off their nose and get them going. I've seen I've seen moms and dads go without food and let the children eat. Hey. You naturally do that with your family. You naturally do that with the people that you love. The Apostle Paul now amps it up a notch and says, that's the way that you ought to live with every brother and sister in Christ Jesus in the church. Isn't that right? Is that what he says? Esteem others better than yourself. Let me give you a couple applications on this and we'll, we'll just move to the end. Spend time with and do things for people who can't give you anything in return. You want to work at putting others above yourself? Spend time with and do things for people who can't return the favor. Yeah? The way that we treat people who cannot do for us or return a favor or scratch our back, the way we treat them is indicative of the kind of character that we really are on the inside. Number two, when you catch yourself longing to be first, go to the back of the line. I was in the reading group on Friday. and We had a great time. They were giving me some illustrations of this. And somebody I said, what's a, what's a way that you could help yourself be last instead of be first? Or put somebody else. And you know what they came up with? Instantly, they went right to conversations and they said, you know what, so many times when we're talking with people, instead of actually giving them the gift of listening to them, we are thinking about what we want to say before they ever finish. When you catch yourself doing that, stop. And in your mind, say, I'm just going to give them my full attention and listen to what they have to say. I came up with with one in the reading group, and I guess nobody in there else had the same problem I do, but uh, I'll give you this one. How about this? Next time you're going down the road and somebody wants to turn onto the road that you're getting in, and you, you feel that impulse on the inside to speed up. That, am I the only one like? Come on, people. Not in front of me, not on my watch. When you feel that impulse, if you want to esteem others better than yourself, why don't you just stop right there and say, Lord, I know you don't have to let 15 cars in, okay? Because if I'm behind you, Oh man, Mr. Allen, left the Jesus sticker on the front of my trucks. So I can't honk at you, but you know if you do that, I, w- I want to honk. Let people in. Let's let people in. You say, "Steve is yes, that, that's, that's silly. Will that really help? Oh, oh yes. You begin to work on a small practice like that, learning to be second and learning to put others before you. And you'll find that that will bleed over into the way that you treat brothers and sisters in Christ, the way that you treat your family and your friends and your co-workers. That's the kind of life that Christ wants us to have. That's the kind of church that Jesus would join, one that lives as one and one that loves each other. So now we're going to dive into this passage. I'm not sure that I'll finish it today, but I'm going to do the best I can. And so you just need to think fast, okay, because I'm going to speak kind of fast. In verse number 5 through 11 I think the kind of church that Jesus would be uh, would join would be a church that learns from Jesus all right he would do that because he's God and you should learn from him learn from Christ verse 5 through 11 and so, I put up there, uh, two thoughts. I don't know. Are they up there? Oh, man. Oh, okay. That's the reason why y'all are all looking at There's it. not up here. Okay. Uh, well, so, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And before you check out them, I mean, you just, you just need to learn a couple of new words. Okay. Orthodoxy just simply means right beliefs. Right beliefs. Orthopraxy simply means right practices. All right. So now you can press all your friends. Orthodoxy. So it means right beliefs. This is orthodox. You ever heard of that? Orthodox beliefs. These are right. These are true. These are time-tested traditional beliefs of the Christian faith. Orthodoxy. Orthopraxy simply means that we take that orthodox belief, that orthodox doctrine, and this is right practice. This is how we live that out every day of our life. And so in these verses, I think we learn both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And so let me uh, just walk down through verse 6 and 7, and it'll take me a minute or two, and then, uh, and then we'll try and get the rest. So look at verse number, well, verse number five. He says, have this attitude in yourselves. So it is the mindset. This attitude is a mindset. Uh, have this attitude in yourselves, okay? It is corporate here. So yes, you are to do this individually, but the Apostle Paul is writing this text to the church. He is saying, let this mind, let this attitude be in your congregation that was also in Christ Jesus, okay? Verse number 6, "...who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped at." So let me stop and explain verse number 6 for you. Verse number 5 is not speaking of Christ in some pre-existent condition. This is speaking of him actually as Christ Jesus while he was on earth in the incarnation. All right, Jesus Christ. And so verse 6 and 7 is what is true of him, not in the pre-existing state, although it is, but this is what the Apostle Paul has in mind. He's thinking of Jesus of Nazareth. He's thinking of Jesus born of Mary. He is thinking of the God-man, Jesus Christ, while on earth. Now read verse number 6. While he was here on earth who although he existed, and the word here, although it is past tense probably in your translation, it is a perfect tense. It means so, he, he already existed and he continues to exist in the form of God. And when you read the word there, the form of God, this word simply means everything that it means to be God, he is. All of the eternality, all of the omnipotence and omniscience and all of the all-knowingness of God, everything that it means to be God, Jesus is. So, while He was on earth, even though He existed, right, and continues to exist in that form, in the form of God, look what it says here, He did not regard equality with God, that would be the Father, a thing to be grasped at or seized at. Now what's going on in verse number 6? The Apostle Paul in many other areas in the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans, he does a comparison between Adam and Christ. He calls Adam the first man and he calls Christ the last man. Adam is the man who fell and Christ is the one who succeeded. Now in the Garden of Eden, when Satan came to Adam... He came to him questioning him and saying, if you'll eat this fruit, so to speak, you will be as God's. And the first man did think that it was something to grasp at to be equal with God. He did think that it would be something to seize upon to be like God. And that's why he took of it and so plunged all of mankind into sin. But in Luke chapter number 4, when Jesus is in the desert and He had fasted for 40 days, and the tempter comes to Him and says, If you really are the Son of God, throw yourself off of this building and cause the angels to get you. What does He say? Get away from me, for why should you tempt the Lord your God? For Jesus did not feel as if it was something to grasp at, for He Himself is God. What Adam could not do in the Garden of Eden, Christ did do ultimately for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, taking upon the form of a servant and humbled himself to the death, even the death of the cross, which leads us to verse number 7. Look at verse number 7. True of Jesus in His incarnation... But he, you might have something like this, but he emptied himself, laid aside something to that. And the reason why there's multiple translations here is it's a difficult word. But I think the best word in the English language for this is he emptied himself, all right? And the the Greek word here many people have wrestled with, and there has been some bad theology. Let me see where I am. Okay, give me a couple minutes. Uh, there's been some bad theology before that said, this This verse teaches that when God, Jesus left heaven, He emptied Himself of all that it meant to be God. He was no longer God and He came only to be a human. <clears throat> That's wrong, okay? No, Jesus was fully God throughout His entire time here on earth. This verse here is the same Greek translation that you would find of the Greek translation of Isaiah 53.12. In fact, let me run over there right quick for you. Isaiah 53 speaks about the servant, and you'll notice that verse number 7 in Philippians 2 talks about the servant. Isaiah 53 speaks about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53 in verse number 12 reads this way, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It is the same word here. He emptied himself in his incarnation as the God-man. He poured out himself to death. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in an appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9-11, through 11, for, the, for this reason, because he died that death, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name And then you'll notice in verse number 10 and 11 that every knee would bow with things uh, above the earth, in the earth, and under the earth. Okay, don't worry about like, does that mean that hell is somewhere under the earth? It's just an idiom here to say everything in all the world bows before Jesus. And every tongue confesses that He is the Lord. That is orthodoxy. Both God and man in one person dying for the sins of the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death for every person in this room today. What's the orthopraxy? What do we learn from Jesus in this text that we can take away? Do you remember a couple of verses ago where it says, let each esteem other better than themselves? Lift them up. Christ comes from heaven down to earth, takes on the form of a servant, and takes all of our rotting sinfulness to the cross so that we might put all of our sin in Him and He might put all of our righteousness in us and lift us up out of the miry clay of our sinfulness. What do we learn from Jesus? Humility and obedience to the Father. Humility and obedience to the Father. Well, let me finish with a couple of applications. Say, so how do I apply that? I would say, first of all, know who Jesus really is. Number two, be grateful for what Jesus has done. And number three, learn to have the mind of Christ. You know, I've been praying for some time, probably the last couple of years. um, My heart has been really burdened. I, I want to know Jesus more. I feel like I know a lot about Him theologically. But I'm praying that God would just work the truth of Jesus so down deep in my heart. I want to fall in love with Christ. I want to be thankful every day for what He has done and all of my sins that He has forgiven and all of the new life that He has given. I want to worship Jesus. Do you want to worship Jesus? What kind of church would Jesus join? church that lives as one, that loves each other, and that learns from Christ how to live our lives together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment? I think um, in, in just a moment we'll, uh, we'll stand and maybe sing a verse of a song together um, right where you are. Maybe you, even on this rain day, so to speak. Maybe this week you haven't had a few minutes just to kind of meditate and think and be appreciative of what Jesus has done for you. Would you commit today to, to live as one with His church, to love each other, and to learn from Jesus? how to live your life. Make a fresh commitment to Him today. And if you don't know Him as Savior and Lord, you've never had your sins forgiven, come to Him right now in your heart. Confess your sin to Him and beg Him to save you. And He will. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcralee.com.